Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is Niall Rogers. Niall's a Grammy-winning songwriter, musician, producer, and arranger whose music has helped set the soundtrack to our lives for well over the last 40 years. As co-founder of the band Chic, Niall has helped to create a musical language that has birthed hits like Le Freak, Dance, 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 and Good Times. He's also written and produced all-time classics for artists like David Bowie, Madonna, Diana Ross, Duran Duran, Daft Punk, and Sister Sledge, whose iconic We Are Family is not only one of the best-known songs of our time, but whose title also lends its name to Niall's We Are Family Foundation, an organization fighting racism, inequality, and injustice. Niall currently serves as chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame and as chief creative advisor for the legendary Abbey Road Studios in London. His collected work has helped sell a staggering 500 million albums worldwide. So now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Niall Rogers. Welcome, 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 welcome. Hi, Niall. Hey, how are you, man? I'm good. Great to see you, man. Thanks for for joining us for Rock and Roll High School. Of all the requests that we've had for guests, you are literally our number one most requested guest. So thanks for joining us today. It means a lot to us. Oh, you're just saying that. Come on. Oh, for real. What, what's really amazing, you and I were just talking before we went live, and I just finished your book that you wrote a few years ago, but it's really incredible. It's called Le Freak. Nile Rogers wrote it himself. And when you read this book, it's really almost hard to fathom, one, that you're still alive, two, that you had the success that you had coming from where you came from. So for those who don't know, when you were born, your mother was 13 years old. Yeah, well, 14, actually. She got pregnant at 13, but uh, she delivered at 14. And she was a drug abuser. Yeah, she was a heroin addict almost her entire life. And what, what was that like for a kid? It was pretty okay for me. I didn't, I didn't understand that that was a bad thing until... I saw it through the eyes of others. So while I was really young, um, it really had no effect on me. I, I thought my parents were the coolest people in the world. The unfortunate part about it was that many of my aunts and uncles and even my biological father died, and they all died of heroin overdoses, which is incredible to me. Uh, at least seven or eight people in, in my family, you know, uncles and my biological dad. Um, but my stepfather and my mom were junkies until I think my stepfather quit a few years before I wrote the book. 
And my mom quit before he did. You said that you grew up being raised, you refer to your parents as bohemian beatnik junkies. So even yeah, though they, were. they even though they were junkies, you had an amazing upbringing when it came to culture and taste and music. And and you mentioned that when you went to show and tell in elementary school, you would be everybody else would be bringing their dolls and you would be bringing Nancy Wilson and Billie Holiday albums. Right. And Nina Simone and Oscar Brown Jr. and Coltrane and Miles. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a very bebop, modern jazz kind of world. So it was bebop and modern jazz in my home, but it was classical music in the public school system. And at that time, it shows you how old I am, um, the standardized uh, curriculum pretty much throughout the United States you know, we took music and art and gym and all that kind of stuff that I, I now hear parents have to pay for. But this was just part of the standardized educational system in America. So I learned classical music at a young age. I was pretty good. So I dedicated myself to woodwind instruments. And the final one that I played was the clarinet. And that was really fortunate, um, fortuitous in my life, because when the 60s came and everybody started playing guitar and singing folk music and protest songs and stuff, uh, we were really poor. And I had a huge stack of clarinet study books, uh, you know, etudes. And um, the B-flat clarinet has the same written range as the guitar. So I had all these books that I could study from. And that gave me a real edge in the music business because I could read music so well that I started gigging almost about a year and a half after I picked up a guitar. Amazing. Uh, the fact that your parents were drug addicts, you talked about even before becoming musically inclined, that you almost had to raise yourself, that you said you were seven years old and you were almost always alone as a seven-year-old in New York City. You also said, I was the oldest eight-year-old on earth. You know, do, what, what do you remember about that? Yeah, that that's sort of how I felt. My life was, there just were no kids in the village when I was younger. So even though the school that I went to was a regular elementary school and there were kids there, but where we lived, we lived in the extreme West Village. We were one block away from, from Westbeth, which is basically a block from the Hudson River. And the building that we lived in was brand new. And it was occupied by, you know, artists of all sorts. And none of them had children. So I was the only child in my building. And my closest friend to me, he lived on the border of Greenwich Village and Little Italy. So hmm. it was quite a walk. But you know, I used to have music in my head all the time. So I would score my life. You know, I'd walk down the street and it was like, you know, John Williams was playing in my head. So I was a swashbuckler when I was a kid. Everything was, you know, you know, it was like adventure music. So I created scenarios and sometimes my mom would ask me, what did I do today? And I come up with these ridiculous stories. I'd say, yeah, mom, you know, I fought three dragons on the way home and stuff like that. So I really lived in my head. And you talked about how you used to sing to yourself as, since yes. you were a lonely kid. 
and singing made you feel less alone. Yeah, I I always, music was like a blanket to me, and I would let that blanket just cover me at all times. I drowned in music. It was just, I don't know what I would have done. I would have probably gone mad because the tricky thing about living with heroin addicts is that even though my parents were super, super intellectuals, um, it was difficult to hold a conversation with them if they were high because they would nod. So they would talk to you and in mid-sentence they would go and nod off. And I still always think that adults slept standing up and only children slept lying down because my parents would talk to me and the next thing you know, they would be like, and they would rock back and forth, never fall over, cigarette ashes like two feet long and never would hit the ground. So I used to think that they were sort of magical. It didn't seem like it was dangerous or anything like that, even though I knew people were dying from heroin overdoses. But when you're a kid, you don't really... Well, I won't say one doesn't. I'll just say I didn't. I didn't absorb it or internalize it that way. I didn't think of it as being dangerous. I didn't think of them as being odd. They just were the way that they were. And all their friends were like that, too. So I was hanging around with adults. Even, I mean, you you brought up the word odd. And when I was taking some notes um, while reading your book, I used that word about your childhood a lot because your parents would have affairs basically in front of each other. There's one moment where you, you talked about a woman coming in to have an affair with your stepfather and bringing her monkey. I mean, this is yeah. as odd as it gets. <laughs> da- Daisy. That was Daisy. <laughs> Daisy was the monkey yeah, um, or the woman? No, no, no. That was the, the woman. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was funny, too, because my mom, when my mom busted them, my mother played it off really, really cool. She, uh, you know, offered to make them dinner and the whole bit. <laughs> and um, one day my mom was going off on a date and my my father freaked out. I'm like, where are you going? And she said, oh, I'm just going to do the same thing uh, you and Daisy were doing. <laughs> so, you know, it was like he couldn't really say anything. This was all you knew. So this was normal. Yeah, no, I... It, so I grew up in the in the late 50s and early 60s. I became self-aware when I was around five and a half years old. So from that point forward, I really was living almost like an adult. In New York City in those days, we didn't have yellow school buses. We took public transportation to school. So in the first grade, I was on the subway or on the the bus. I was doing what adults did. I did my first trip from Los Angeles to New York by myself when I was seven years old. So talk about that for a second, because one thing I didn't realize about your childhood before I read your book was that there was a ton of, you know, trans uh, continental travel for for young Nile Rogers. You relocated to LA with your grandmother. Your mother was told by a psychiatrist that she wasn't emotionally fit to take care of children. So you moved to LA, but then you started skipping school. So you were sent back and then you kept going back and forth. Right. So I just have to tell this story because this is, to me, you know, you talk about the Grammys and all that stuff. This is one of my proudest achievements. But the first two years of my life, I was going to parochial school, to Catholic school. 
And in New York, they treated me fantastic. They were like, they thought that I was this really unique, special kid. Because what had happened is in uh, Catholic school in those days, there was no kindergarten. So you went directly into the first grade. So they didn't expect anyone to be able to read in the first grade or have any preparatory skills uh, because they just didn't do that in Catholic school. What happened was I was born quite sickly and I lived in oxygen tents and all sorts of stuff. So I I was hospitalized quite a bit. And I went to this convalescent home. Uh, that was known for uh, children with respiratory diseases, but they were also really well-known, and they still are, for their early childhood development programs. So we were in a one-room classroom, and even though I was six years old, uh, five and a half, it would range from six uh, six to, like, you know, first grade to eighth grade or ninth grade or something like that. So I just started doing what the other kids were doing. So by the time I went to uh, proper school, um, a few months later, I had already read Treasure Island and I was working on Moby Dick. I mean, if you try and read Melville now, you see how it's pretty challenging. It's not your standard fare there. So, um, So when I first checked into Catholic school, the nuns were going, oh, my God, he's a miracle. He's been touched by the hand of God. And my mom is like super atheist. She was like, what are you talking about? And they say, he's reading. And they kept giving me the first grade reader, second grade reader, third grade reader, fourth grade reader. And I would only start to stumble when I got to polysyllabic words or words that I had just hadn't heard yet. So I had a very broad vocabulary for a six-year-old. Um, and they were just thinking that it was something like God touched me. And my mom was like, oh, what is he just went to school. That's all. So I went from that experience to going to Los Angeles, where and when I got to the school in L.A., I was the only black kid in an all-white school. And the nuns treated me horribly. It was so bad. I decided to cut school. And I, I cut school for a few days. And then I learned how to do it effectively And uh, I set the national truancy record at seven years old. I cut school for 75 days straight and I planned it with military precision. And the only way that I got caught was one day my grandmother was sick. She got the flu. And when I came home, she was already there. And I was like, oh, I was busted because I had a whole procedure. I would get winos who would like you know, were laid out in front of the liquor store to write my notes because my penmanship looked like a child's penmanship. But these guys would do it for me for my money. When you go to Catholic school, they give you money to put in the collection box. So I'd give it to those guys. They write the letter. And then I got a legitimate letter once from a doctor because I had asthma. So I would keep that letter with me and just whip it out on the cops and the truant officers and stuff. And I pulled this off for 75 days. It was amazing. (laughs) <laughs> they kicked me out of the parochial school system, by the way. <laughs> At what point did you start dabbling yourself in substance abuse and sniffing glue and, and things like that? That was all pretty young, right? Yeah, I, I did that. The glue sniffing really happened around, I would say around 13 or 14, but I did start drinking at 11. But I I wasn't like 
a super duper drinker. Of course, because of my parents being incredibly open. And this was, you know, this was like the, the beatnik movement was starting to go out and the hippie movement was coming in. So it was all about free love and, you know, Playboy magazine and things like that. And and my parents were so cool that they read Playboy for the articles, you know, so it was all this <laughs> super intellectual new age kind of hip stuff going on. So my parents actually didn't find it peculiar for me to smoke pot. They didn't think it was weird. Uh, you know, it was like, the, it was almost like living in Italy where they say, you know, but I, I just want you to do it here in the house with us. You know, don't go to the restaurant and do it, but just do it here at home where, you know, like kids, like I know kids in Italy that drink like when they're young. So that's how it was in my household that I could smoke cigarettes and I could smoke pot and I could even drink wine with them as long as I did it in the house. But of course, as a kid, that doesn't stick. So I dabbled quite a bit you know, with substances like that when I was young. But what was really interesting is that there came a time in my life where I just stopped altogether. I just wasn't interested and I became super focused on music. I almost lived like a monk. I lived in a one-room apartment that was just 11 by 13, really small, Murphy bed out of the wall, and I just practiced day and night, day and night. I got to go back before we get to the the monk-like existence. So you're talking about the hippie era replacing the beatnik era, and it's the mid-60s. And you write in the book that, you know, hippie happenstance, right? Yes. You end up dropping acid when you're 13 years old with Timothy 14. Leary. 14 years old. Yeah. So you have a year off on yeah. everything. How, how does that happen? <laughs> Timothy Leary... First of all, acid was legal in Los Angeles. It was legal probably in the whole United States when it first came out. So it wasn't an illegal substance. But we didn't even know about acid. So I was living in South Central L.A. at this time. I was only listening to R&B music and classical music. Of course, jazz was in my blood. But my grandmother at the time, she wasn't a big jazz freak except for big bands and stuff so she was now starting to listen to gospel music and that was like whoa it wasn't really my thing so i was a total r&b motown fanatic and we used to go to the roller skating rink on sunset and western sunset boulevard and western in in hollywood but from south central los angeles which was the hood to hollywood was a distance and typically my grandmother would give me money to buy some amount of refreshments, not a lot because we were quite poor, but, you know, to take the bus there and back and to get, you know, a hot dog or, a, a, you know, a drink of some sort. But what we did so that we could have more money for recreational stuff is we would hitchhike to the uh, skating rink. The problem with hitchhiking is that it wasn't on a schedule. You didn't know who was going to give you a ride or if you were going to get a ride. So sometimes we would just walk and then hitchhike and then walk and then hitchhike and then eventually get a ride. So this one particular day, we were headed to the skating rink and uh, we didn't get a ride for a long time. And by the time we got there, we were in between skating sessions. So we were just going to sit on the, the bus stop bench and wait until the next session started. And we just happened to look across the street and there's a venue called the Hollywood Palladium. We could see at the Hollywood Palladium a sign that said the Teenage Fair. And we saw 
for the first time in our lives, we saw hippies, but we didn't know that they were hippies. We didn't even, we never saw long hair kids like that because the school that I went to in the hood was almost all black uh, or Mexican or Japanese and nobody had long hair. And we had been sniffing glue that day. So we were really jovial and friendly and laughing and joking. So we went over to these really odd looking guys who were dressed in colorful clothing and had beads everywhere. And we walked over to them and said, wow, who are you guys? And they looked at us and they said, uh, in that really California hippie thing, they went, uh, man, you know, we're like, we're freaks, man. You know, uh, like we're, we're, we're freaks, man. And they said, like, who are you guys? And we were just laughing. And then they started laughing. And, uh, and then they went, wow, spade cats, man. You want to take a trip? And we didn't know what that meant. We thought they meant to go joyriding because that was the thing, right? If someone had a car, you just get in a car and you go ride to the beach or you just ride around and look at stuff. So at our age, that was like fun. Wow, you want to take a trip? Yeah, let's go. So we hopped in the car with these guys. We drove up into Hollywood Hills and uh, we went to this house that was basically almost all glass. At least that's what it looked like to us as young teenagers. And we walked inside and there was a swimming pool and naked girls, like naked everybody, everywhere. And we were like, whoa, how cool is this? I honestly, to this day, I don't know how I ingested the acid because I'd never heard of acid. I didn't know who Timothy Leary was. I didn't know any of the people in this house, except for the people that invited us up to the house. And, you know, now that I think back upon this, maybe the guys that took us up there were actually musicians. Maybe they were like some kind of band or something that was because L.A. had a lot of surf bands and people like that. And they would have probably been the type of people who were cool enough to take us up there. I don't really remember too much about that, but we went up there. Somehow we ingested acid. I don't know if it was sugar cube or blotter or whatever, or even a tab, or I don't know what it was. But I do know that after being there for a couple of hours, we were staring at a television set that had a cathode ray tube removed, and it was filled with angel hair like you put on a Christmas tree, and it had flashing lights. And we stared at it for like a day and a half, listening to The Doors' first album. And in particular, I guess they had one of those record players that could just go to the last cut or something like that on, a, on an album. Or maybe this is just my wacky state of mind. Maybe I just fixated on this song called The End. So the big hit from The Doors was Light My Fire. But we kept listening to the song The End. You know, mother, yes, son, I want to kill you. Father, I want to kill you. <laughs> I stayed at this house for about 72 hours, nah, not that long, but yeah, a day, a day and a half, 36, 40 hours. And I returned to my grandmother's house like the next day and my clothes were all tattered and dirty. And oh, and the funny thing is that we were wearing shark skin suits because we idolized the temptations at that time. So you know how like young girls would dress up like Madonna when Madonna came on the scene? So when we were kids, we dressed up like the miracles and the temptations. So they all wore suits and like uniforms. So you imagine we're 14 year old kids in shark skin suits and ruffle shirts going to the skating rink. We probably look 
equally as odd to the hippies as they look to us. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you fat, fast forward from when I was 14 to now I'm like, you know, 27 or I was a little older, maybe about 30. I go to a party and this really famous uh, Hollywood agent's daughter is throwing this big party and it's like loaded with movie stars and stuff. And bang, one of the guests was Dr. Timothy Leary. And she was introducing everybody. We had, we had place cards. It was a formal dinner. And I saw that it was Dr. Timothy Leary. Now, of course, I'm an adult and I know all about Timothy Leary. And I go over and say, you know, Mr. Leary, you know, we've actually met once before. And I start <laughs> telling the story to everybody around this long table. And then he picks up and tells the story word for word. And I'm like sitting there and I'm, I couldn't get in a word edgewise. And I love to talk. And I just sat there and listened to him recreate the whole scenario and i realized that we probably look just as ridiculous and freaky as they did because 14 year old kids dressed like pimps <laughs> with roller skates pimps, pimps with roller skates he probably thought that was the funniest thing in the world because we thought they were funny but cool and i guess we all made a huge impression upon each other amazing it was amazing Let's fast forward a little bit to the music. You know, it was amazing that I got a, a hundred pages into your book, like a third of the way in, and we haven't even met Bernard yet. You know, there's so much right. to talk about. So, you know, if everyone's listening to this and they're like, where's the music coming? Well, here's the music. So you got your first <laughs> guitar for Christmas when you were 15 years old. And right. you had told your parents you wanted a guitar. You stopped living at home at, at, when you were 15. But before that, you got a right. guitar for Christmas. What was that like? Uh, that was pretty amazing. Um, the, the problem was I didn't really know how to play guitar. I knew classical in stringed instruments somewhat. I certainly knew how they tuned and I knew how every instrument in a symphony orchestra functioned. So I tuned the guitar the best I could, and I would just play on one string at a time, like bass lines or melodies. The first thing I learned to play, I think, was a TV show theme, The Man from Uncle. Don't, 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 don't. And then um, I got a Beatles songbook and started playing the song A Day in the Life because I loved that song. And I kept trying to finger the positions, like the little dotted diagrams that they had in the in the the songbook and the fingering chart so i could read the melody but the chord positions they just have these little box-like diagrams that represent your fingers and i would push and and do the bar chords and the whole bit and no matter what i did it never sounded right and i just thought because of my training on the clarinet i thought that the guitar equivalent of embouchure, the positioning of your lips on the mouthpiece. I just didn't have the quite embouchure or whatever on the guitar, but I did have the fingering right. Just It just always sounded peculiar. And one day my mom's boyfriend at the time walked in and went, whoa, how do you got that thing tuned? And I said, well, I just tuned it. He said, hold on a second. He picked it up. He said, damn, you got this thing tuned like a banjo or a violin. What is this? And he tuned the guitar for me. And then he gave it back to me, and then I strummed the chords that I had been playing forever. It was almost like Karate Kid, wax on, wax. I kept doing that, and all of a sudden, <laughs> I played the chord, and it was beautiful, and it was perfect, and it was in tune. I went, brum. I was like, whoa. And I played the next chord really slow, brum. And then I played three or four chords, and then I went back to the beginning and went, 
Boom. I read the news today, oh boy. Dun, dun. Pretty slow. Dun, 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 dun. About a lucky man who made the grade. And I was like all into it. So that's the first song I ever learned to play on guitar. And it was The Day in the Life by the Beatles. And what was so great about it is that the positioning of the chords on that song helped me build up my strength. So I was able to almost play just by looking at a book like right away. And I got my first job only a few months later with Sesame Street. Let's talk about that. So Sesame Street, you found out about a gig. Were you, was that the place where you were at Juilliard and there was an audition? Right. So what happened was because I had pretty good musical training, but I did want to now study the guitar. I didn't want to play woodwinds. At that time, Juilliard was only teaching classical music. So if you weren't part of the symphony orchestra, if your instrument wasn't part of the symphony orchestra, you couldn't really go there unless maybe you were a theory major or something. But this particular year, they were just starting the extension division and they were offering classical guitar in the extension division. So I went to Juilliard to check it out. But then there were two other big schools in New York, Manus School of Music and Manhattan School of Music, which was in fact the old Juilliard campus. And I went to those schools because they had been teaching guitar. So I went to Manhattan, looked at the bulletin board, and there was a little index card on the bulletin board outside the practice rooms. And it said, a, you know, a steady paying job or something like that. Definitely didn't say anything about Sesame Street. And when I got there, the bass player was already a friend of mine. I had known him from doing, you know, pickup gigs. And I walked in and I did the audition. I read the chart. And I guess I got the gig right away. I don't remember um, if they said, oh, wow, you're fantastic. You know, maybe they had said, we'll call you. But I certainly got the gig. And that changed my whole life. It was like school, gig. I'm taking the gig. <laughs> How old were you, Niall, at that point? I think 17 or 18. Yeah, it's somewhere around there. What was touring with Sesame Street like? It was wonderful. It was amazing because the people were great. I've been fortunate in that I've lived a life in the sort of bohemian, beatnik, hippie, lane forever. So I've always been around cool people. Like I remember a couple of years ago, I heard somebody say that feminism was a bad word or something like that. I was like, going, what are you talking about? Every woman I've ever known was a fem. Like, like, I, like, I don't even, it was like, I almost felt like I was on another planet because the world I come from, you know, all the women are cool. All the guys are cool. Well, there are a few knuckleheads, but most of them are cool. Um, and, you know, I remember when my my psychiatrist, when I was a teenager, when Roe v. Wade was passed, my psychiatrist, when she got her abortion, she was like, wow, this is so, I mean, it was like we were in that mix. You know, my mom had three coat hanger abortions. So this was like a big thing, you know, like in my world. So to be connected with you know, the political movements, social movements, and even spiritual movements uh, was just a part of my upbringing. So to get a first job like Sesame Street, where you get a paycheck every week and, you know, taxes taken out and it's a union job 
and you're working with puppets and talented people and they're all really cool. It almost just felt like it was the path, like somebody had drawn my life's arc and I was just right on the proper arc in my life. It was like, okay, beatnik parents, hippie, blah, 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 Sesame Street, your first gig. And then I went from Sesame Street to the Apollo, and that was incredible. And what was funny about this, which you probably know, but most people don't, there was a guitar player named Carlos Alomar who was the, doing the Sesame Street gig before me. And then he went from Sesame Street to the Apollo Theater, and then David Bowie picked him up, and he was the Young, young Americans. So I did Sesame Street, then from Sesame Street went to the Apollo Theater. It would take me years before I got to David Bowie, but at that point, I was like his partner instead of just in the band. So I didn't Amazing. mind taking the longer trip. Amazing. Carlos laid some uh, footprints for you, for sure. Yeah. And then his wife sang on all my records because Luther Vandross became our boss. And yep. she was with Luther and everybody on Sesame Street. It was just it was this wonderful collective of people. So talk about how you met Bernard. So I met Bernard, interestingly enough, the first time I was introduced to Bernard was by my girlfriend's mom. So I left home around 15. I was sleeping on the subway in the streets. Then around 16, I moved in with my girlfriend at the time. My mom then left New York and went to Los Angeles. And I said, look, mom, I'm staying here. Moved in with my girlfriend. And her mom was just like my mom, really cool. She had been married to a famous jazz bass player. And she came home one night and she says, you know, there's this cat who sits next to me at the post office. Now, I've never heard him play before, but he just has a vibe about him. I think he's really cool. So I was putting together a band, and I was a total, I mean, I was like ultra hippie. Like, there was nothing R&B about me. I was like, the bands that I like were all psychedelic bands, you know, Country Joe and the Fish and Hendrix, and I, I was out there. So she gave me Bernard's phone number and I called him up and uh, I still remember the conversation almost as if it were yesterday. I called him up and I says, uh, I was like those hippies that I met uh, on Sunset. I went, uh, Hey man, uh, I'm putting a band together. And it's like, it's like a cross between Fairport convention, man, you know, like a little Mahavishnu, maybe we'll do like some Hendrix jams, man, do a little country down the fish, man, some Jefferson airplane, you know, Hey, what do you, what do you think, man? And I'll I never forget this. Bernard went, uh, yo, my man, lose my number. Click and hung up the phone <laughs> on me. <laughs> like that was it. End of story. So in those days, we basically were jazz musicians. People would call us to do sub gigs on the weekend. So a guy would call you up and say, Hey, I got a job, because typically they would have a better job. So they took the better job and gave you the lesser. So my friend Marty called me up and said, hey, Niall, uh, I got a gig for you if you can sub for me. And I said, sure. And of course, we always ask how much it's paying. We know it's $15. He's taking the $35 or the $40 gig. So I'm getting 15 bucks or something. So, But you still go through the formalities. Uh, so how much is it paying? Oh, it's a 15 center. All right, cool. Well, you know, I'm free. So I go and I do this gig <laughs> and I get there and... um the band was, they all were really good players, but they weren't organized. And the guy who was the front guy who hired us was accustomed to being in an organized type band. He played trumpet for 
a pretty famous R&B artist at the time. So he wanted to put on a show. So Bernard and I, who had never met before, just we just took the responsibility upon ourselves to tighten up this unit. So in those days, we could call out songs by the numbers, and everybody was really well-trained. If Bernard knew the song, then he would be the band leader. If I knew the song, I was the band leader. And we just go back and forth because the people wanted to hear the popular songs that were on the jukebox. You know, it's a dead art now. <laughs> like in the old days, the, every nightclub had a jukebox. They didn't have a DJ. They have a jukebox. And they wanted to hear the same music that was on the jukebox, or they wanted to hear it live for some reason. So we had to know everything. And you had to really play it like the way the song goes, even if you didn't have the proper instrumentation, you just faked it on your instrument. And we got really good at doing that. So Bernard and I, after that first show, he said to me, I never want to do another gig without you. And I said, damn, I was thinking the exact same thing. Every gig I get called for, I'm going to recommend you as the bass player. So now he and I become like this. We are tight as hell. Did he remember that he had hung up on you? He had no idea. And I had no idea he was the guy. None whatsoever. <laughs> so we're now riding the subway. My girlfriend's mom gets on the same car that we happen to be in. He and I are sitting there. We're laughing and joking because that's what we did all the time. And I see her walking towards me. And of course, she's going to come to me because we live together. But she walks towards me and goes right past me and goes to Bernard and says, so I see you cats finally hooked up. And we looked at each other and went, that was you? Because he couldn't believe that I was the same guy that was going, wow. oh, wow, man, you know, like just like my Vishnu, man, you know, like country doing the fish, man, you know, like he like he couldn't believe that it was me. He was like, that was you? Whatever happened to that country doing the fish bullshit? Yeah, so we became inseparable. It was Bernard who convinced you to trade in your Gibson for the hit maker, right? Yeah. Yeah, we were we Bernard became the band leader of a group called New York City. And when they were filling out the rhythm section, Bernard said, you know, I, my friend is like the baddest guitar player in town. We got to hire him. So they hired me and we were doing pretty big shows. We even opened for the Jackson Five because we were standing in for the OJs. That's from that moment, Michael Jackson, and I became sort of like lifelong friends because I was the the recalcitrant anti-establishment guy and and his father was like the tyrannical taskmaster and tried to boss everybody around but he couldn't boss me around because i just wasn't hearing it it was like you know at that time i was in the black panther party i was totally anti-establishment and i was definitely not going to be bossed around by a guy who wasn't even really my boss he was just the boss of the tour but anyway that's a whole nother story so Bernard got me into the group New York City, and we had a hit record. I'm doing fine now, du, 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 without you, baby. So that was our big hit, and we toured around the world on that song, one song for like two tours. So they were called New York City, so we called ourselves the Big Apple Band. And we wound up developing a reputation ourselves. Then our old friend Luther Vandross hired us, and we joined Luther and we were gigging. And now I started to write R&B music. Up until then, I had only been writing jazz, but I decided to write R&B. And the very first song I ever wrote was called Everybody Dance. And we were Luther's backup band at the time. So in those days, even when you played Radio City, there were two shows a night. So in between the intermission or during the intermission, we ran to a recording studio. We recorded the foundation of Everybody Dance and then two other jazz songs that I did that I covered. 
And then the next day we went back and finished it. And that was the first Chic song ever recorded. point I was the only composer Bernard had never written a song but a few months later everybody dance took off in the underground clubs we then got $3500 to go record a new original song and that's when we wrote dance 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 yowza 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 and at first I was only writing that song with a guy named Kenny Lehman and when I got to the studio I noticed that the bass part was really distinctive and I was like that's that's got to be Bernard playing that. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, well, we should finish the song with Bernard. He was like, well, but Bernard does it right. And I said, well, but I feel uncomfortable. Like his part is the most distinctive part of the song. So then I wrote everything else and we called Bernard in and I sang the song to him. And it was this completely convoluted, ridiculous thing that when I just dance, 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 dance all of the time, I just dance, dance, dance all the time. And Bernard looked at me and went, Hey, my man, why don't you just go dance, 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 dance? <laughs> and I was like, really? And we just did that. We went dance, 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 dance. And that was great. And we got called up Luther. He came in and he sang, keep on dancing. And we're like, whoa, we got a song. finish it off and uh, my original melody was relegated to a secondary contrapuntal line on the micro moog uh, which is in there I mean but I was fighting for my part but I thought to myself well I'm never writing a song without this dude again but that's a great so, example of of what you brought and what Bernard brought because you had a ton of ideas and it was always on him to kind of take the essence of what the song should be. And you talk about the DHM, the deep hidden meaning of understanding a song's DNA. You even have your radio show now on Apple Music One called the Deep Hidden Meaning Radio Show. Do you want to talk about DHM for a minute? Yeah. So when we did that, you, you know, the, the thing that that Bernard and I started to understand right away was that I had written this complicated song about dancing because I was now enthralled by the, the disco movement. It was like amazing to me to see how so many disparate people could go to a, one club and and all get get along together. It was it was fantastic. So I thought, well, if that could happen, if we could see all of these people from different lifestyles, that means we could write music that represents life on multiple levels. It just doesn't have to have a singular meaning. It could be 
you know, like a, a Klimt painting, the, the essence and the soul of the painting is underneath. And then you put the other painting on top. It was like, wow, we started to do that. So all of our songs had double entendre. They all would have the meaning that meant something to us deep down inside. And then this frontal meaning that was sort of the hooky, catchy meaning so that people can, as they used to say on American Bandstand, it's got a good beat and you can dance to it. So we <laughs> would always make sure that our songs would be catchy, we made song. We made sure that uh, the first ten or fifteen seconds that you were committed. Like all of our records start with choruses. We just go one, two, ah, freak out, or da 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 da. We are family, or you know, or good times. We don't wait to get to the chorus. We start with the chorus every song. I would say ninety-five percent of our songs. So we came up with this type of formula, and even to this day. When I'm working with artists, I always try and have something very, very hooky at the start of the song, something really unique and interesting so that we don't have the listener tune out. Your writing was also very aspirational, always has been. You know, it was interesting as I was deep diving back into the catalog and you listened to a song like Good Times. And I never realized that, you know, you actually use the lyric, happy days are here again, yeah. you know, which was a song from the Great Depression of, Man. you know, moving into the roaring 20s. And you wanted to bring that to a modern audience. You just touched upon the perfect example of deep hidden meaning. Up until a few years ago, that was the greatest financial recession that America had seen since the Great Depression. During 1978 and 79, we used to have gas rationing and things like that. You couldn't go to the gas station and get gas unless your, you know, unless your number uh, ended in an odd or even number. And that would determine the day that you could go get gas. So things were pretty, pretty bad during the disco era. But we actually made it seem like it was amazing, like we were living this fabulous life. And we thought, well, what other period in American history was like that? And we went to depression and we had just seen a movie, Jane Fonda, they shoot horses, don't they? And that's that's how we came up with the yowza yowza thing. So that became wow. sort of the blueprint for our band. We became the sort of black jazz age depression era band, the, the age of the Duke Ellington and the Count Basies and stuff like that. But we're a modern version of that. So when we wrote Good Times, we now had reached our real stride. So we we dabbled a little bit with Dance, 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 Yowza, Yowza, Yowza. And Freak Out was an accidental song that we, we stumbled forward over that one. Um, we didn't actually plan that. But good times we planned. And when we started to talk about the, the, the depression and the, the co correlation it had with the, the, the Great Depression, we thought about the songs that were big. And we had... Happy days are here again. The skies above are clear again. Al Josen also had the stars are going to twinkle and shine this evening about a quarter to nine. So we wrote happy days are here again. That was it. The time is right for making friends. Let's get together. Instead of going about a quarter to nine, we go about a quarter to ten. So, so we were borrowing but not completely lifting. We were just being inspired and just changing it around. So we gave props to... Um, happy days are here again and a quarter to nine, but we just made it a quarter to ten. Figured it was <laughs> one better. We were late night people anyway. Good time. 
Let's go back a second. How does the Big Apple band become chic? So what happened was another guy who was uh, affiliated with Manhattan School of Music, the place where I went and got my job at Sesame Street, um, was named Walter Murphy. And Walter Murphy is a very successful television composer now. He did a song, a disco record called A Fifth of Beethoven, where he took Beethoven's fifth and did that, you know, if you saw Saturday Night Fever and you see John Travolta. So Walter Murphy did that song and he called himself Walter Murphy and the Big Apple Band. Now, everybody knew that we had association with Manhattan School of Music, as did Walter. He graduated. I, I got a job. So <laughs> somehow people thought that that was us because we were gigging around New York City. And I'm not sure... He just hadn't heard about our name and it stuck in his head because that's the kind of thing that happens with musicians. But he put out the record and everybody kept calling us up and going, wow, now you, you finally got a, you got a record deal. This is awesome. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And then I heard it and I was like going, well, that's our name, but we didn't have it trademarked. So we had to give up the name. Interestingly enough, uh, Walter Murphy said he wound up giving up the name, too, because he then found out about us and he didn't want to be confused with the other Big Apple band. But we had already changed our name to Chic. And when Bernard first recommended that we call ourselves Chic, Tony and I, our drummer, we were on the floor laughing. Chic, what kind of name is that? You know, like we wanted to call ourselves the boys or the Big Apple band or something that started with a B. But then like a quarter to nine and a quarter to 10, we went up one letter and went to C. <laughs> so uh, we were heavily influenced by KISS. We liked the way their logo looked and ABBA with the A, the B and the B and the A and the KISS was the K and the I and the big S's and all were low. I mean, they were all uppercase. The other thing you liked about KISS was that there was an anonymity to KISS when they came off the stage and they took their makeup off, right? Yeah, we, we had met Kiss because we had become fans of theirs when we were putting together Chic or The Boys, which became Chic, or The Big Apple Band, which became Chic. The first person that we hired was a guy named Rob Sabino, our keyboard player. And he said, man, you got to see these guys kiss. And he introduced me to Ace Fraley. And we went to see Kiss play at a club in New York. And when they were on stage, Everybody was going bananas over these guys and their, you know, their grease paint makeup and the whole bit. And when they took off the makeup, they were just sitting around with us talking and nobody had a clue who they were. So I'm sitting there talking with Ace and nobody knew who Ace Fraley was. I was like, this is amazing. This is like so cool that you could play a role because Bernard and I, we didn't think that we were stars, which is the reason why, you know, we had our, our two lead singers you know, we sort of put them in the middle, like they were the stars and we were like their band. Uh, we were accustomed to playing that backup role, even though we were the persons who conceived it and wrote everything and, you know, and dealt with the designers for the clothing and everything. We just didn't feel like we were stars. We had been around stars. And, you know, if you're around Michael Jackson or you're around Patti LaBelle or you're around Luther Vandross, I mean, you feel their vibe. They walk in the room. When we walk in, we just start joking and laughing and stuff. They come in and they're like, phew, they float into the room. You know, we stumble into the room. 
<laughs> and you said that you never wanted to be a star, and that's why one of no. the reasons that you guys called your your company the uh, the Chic Organization because it showed your collaborative spirit, right? Which has never gone away. I mean, I am the first one to say that our concept was Beethoven can write the Ninth Symphony, but he can't play it. You need a symphony orchestra to play it. So it's like I could write good times, but I can't play it. I could just play my part and I could play other people's parts individually, but I need my ensemble to perform the composition. I need my strings. I need my horns. I need my band. Uh, my, my part is one thing. Uh, it's not the song. So, you know, Chic became a vessel for our compositions. That's what it was all about. And we needed these wonderful people to pull this off. And, and Chic, if you look at the lineup on our records, you would notice that the, the backing musicians would change all the time. We would have some of the greatest players in the world, from the Brecker Brothers, you know, to Tower of Power and to the New York Philharmonic. I mean, we, we always used the greatest musicians who were available at the time. That's just the world we lived in, the world of professional studio musicians. And I, I miss that life. I do everything in my power to try and recreate that every chance I get. It was just a wonderful life to wake up in the morning and know you're walking into a studio not necessarily knowing what's going to come out that day, but just have your little manuscript paper and some motifs and some ideas and you give it to musicians and put it on the stands and start playing it. They read the charts down and while they're playing, I'm like rewriting in my head and going, wait a minute, let's take, go to bar 35 and change that to a B flat minor nine or, you know, whatever. And, you know, and just, right. it was a great, great life. And it's still wonderful now, but it's very, very different in the digital era. Well, talking about Chic and talking about the influence that Kiss had on Chic, another band who was highly influential for Chic was Roxy Music. And talk about how you guys looked at the glamour of Roxy Music. We're showing a, a picture right now of a Roxy Music album cover. And if you look at that album cover and then you look at the album cover of the first Chic album, you'll see right. that there is <laughs> a through line there. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Right. So what happened was when New York City broke up, uh, I had been uh, robbed in, in London. They had stolen my my main, uh, I, I don't know if it was a briefcase or luggage, whatever, but they had stolen, well, let's just call it a briefcase. I don't exactly remember what bag it was, but somebody stole it. And I didn't even notice that they had stolen it until we, had, we, we were loading up to go to the airport. And I realized that it was gone. So I didn't have any of my money and I didn't have a passport to get back into the States. There's a joke in the music business. What do you call a musician without a girlfriend? Homeless. Well, I happened to have a girlfriend in London at that time. And so I did have a home. The guys left me and I was uh, in London with my girlfriend and we were hanging out. She was a, a hostess at this really popular club where all the royal family went and stuff. So she had a lot of money. She had a cool apartment. And so one day she took the night off, or maybe it was the night that she had off, and she asked me to come with her to see her favorite band. And we went to, I guess, this joint called the Roxy Theater or the Roxy Playhouse or the Roxy something or other to see this band called Roxy Music. And I was like blown away. I was like, wow, this is cool. And then... They had girls in the band. It was like, whoa, how cool is that? Because, you know, I'd only seen a few bands 
the head girls in the band, you know, the mamas and the papas and stuff like that. Some of the psychedelic bands, um, and, you know, and of course you had Martha and the Vandellas and things like that. But typically it was a guy oriented thing. And we kept thinking, man, what if we have a band that was really funky and really powerful and sort of glamorous like these guys? Because when Roxy Music came out, it was all fabulous and the audience looked fabulous and they were fabulous. I was like, man, designer clothing? I never seen anything like that. Every rock band I had ever played with, whatever we wore that morning is what we wore on the gig. We didn't get dressed up to do a show. So it, it was clear that they were meticulous about their wardrobe and their look. And I called up Bernard. I, I'll never forget this. I called him up and I said, man, I just saw something I've never seen in my life. He said, what? I said, I just saw a totally immersive experience in music. Uh, I think I even put in artistic. I said, a totally artistic, immersive experience in music. He says, what the hell is that? I said, well, you know, like when you go to the museum and everything is about a certain thing or you, you go to a structure to, you know, to look at, you know, whatever. I said, that this was the Roxy music at the Roxy in designer clothing. The audience were in design. It was like a vibe. And I said, man, what if we do the black version of that? And he was like, oh, that's cool, because to Bernard, it evoked wearing costumes. So when we saw Kiss, everything started to come together. Oh, uh, yeah. And so the uppercase letters, Roxy was four letters. Kiss was four letters. Abba was four letters. It was like, oh, wait a minute. There's there's something going on here. And I I I always talk about this thing called band logic, B-A-N-D logic. And I say it's never, ever to be confused with actual logic because it makes no sense at all. But to us, it makes all the sense in the world. Like we're pulling these concepts out of the air and Roxy is turning into Kiss and Roxy is in couture clothing and Kiss is in big costumes and stuff. But they were anonymous. And, and I would imagine that Roxy music probably looked somewhat anonymous if they weren't in the, the fancy garb. And and then the women on stage with them and the whole bit, it all fused into this one idea that became chic. And you could see how closely related we are with the, the uppercase letters, four letters, a C, you know, a C and a C and an H and an I, K and I and an S and an S. You know, it was like it was all close together. And it was like making um, you know, like a smoothie when you throw in all the ingredients and it sort of comes out as a new thing, but it's still, uh, the essence of it is still based on those, uh, those early, you know, on those ingredients that we threw in the blender. For sure. So let's talk about uh, when Sheik got signed to Atlantic, Jerry Greenberg, 1977, and Dance, 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 which was actually on Buddha, but got signed to Atlantic <laughs> anyway, and broke out yeah. of the Billboard Disco Convention in 1977. Tell us a little bit yeah. about Jerry Greenberg and Atlantic back then. It was really interesting. We were signed to Buddha and we had a contract with them that said um, they will promote us at the first annual disco convention. At the time, we didn't know anything about the record business, and but we did a little digging and we saw that Buddha hadn't paid their bills and that they weren't going to be able to have records pressed in time for the convention. So basically our record was not going to be promoted properly. We were terrified. So one of the executives at Buddha knew that the song was a smash. 
So he called up Jerry Greenberg. He says, hey, Jerry, I got a record for you. That's a smash. Now, these guys are promotion men. And when promotion men smell hit records, they just, they're, you're ready to sell your house. It was like he could smell it was a hit. And he played it for Jerry. Now, meanwhile, Atlantic, the regular A&R people had turned us down maybe 10 or 15 times in different incarnations. They had turned down the Big Apple Band. They turned down the boys, our rock and roll, our black rock and roll band. And they turned down Chic after we had changed our names. We had come in with the, the same song. We had come in with Dance, 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 Yowza, 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 because we had gotten money to make that. Even though we were causing a stir in some of the underground clubs with Everybody Dance, it just wasn't right. Nobody at the A&R department could hear it. But thank God, this guy, Tom Kazi, over at the, who was working at Buddha, knew the knew Jerry, who was the president. He played it for Jerry one time, and Jerry went, oh, my God, cause the record's a smash. And so Kazi said, yeah, but these kids said that the record's got to be at the disco convention. So Jerry says, oh, man, that's coming up on Monday. What do we do? So in those days, uh, Warner had a private jet, which I had flown in. Well, later I would fly in a few times and had two helicopters and limousines and the whole bit. And so Jerry, I guess he called Mo, and he was able to get one of the helicopters to fly out to Pennsylvania to Presswell to just make records all throughout the weekend. Helicopter flew back to New York City. And in, then the, they got limos to drive up and down the eastern seaboard and deliver it to all the DJs, hand deliver it to the DJs. And then when the disco convention started that Monday, all of the DJs from the various clubs had copies of Dance, 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 Yowza, Yowza, Yowza with the Atlantic label on it. So they had beaten Buddha to the punch. So Buddha Records was probably playing other songs because they had a couple of disco hits at the same time. But they weren't sort of interested in dance, dance, dance. They didn't get it out yet. But next thing you know, they hear that their record playing out of everybody's room. So all of the, they didn't have booths. People actually had rooms, hotel rooms. Every hotel room was playing our record. I mean, Jerry Greenberg really scored by hand delivering. All the DJs felt special. The limo would come up and give them two copies of the records. And when Bernard and I walked through those halls of the of the hotel that that the event was being held in, uh, we just couldn't believe it. It was like uh, we were knighted or something. I mean, everybody was like, that's your record. That's your record. I was like, yeah, I've been chasing that high ever since the, the to be anonymous and people just appreciate the song was incredible. So it had happened to me two times in a row with everybody dance. And then now with Dance, 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 like no one knew who we were. Who are those guys? Chick? What is Chick? What is, I don't know, whatever. But the, but the record is cool. The crazy thing about that is when you said that Presswell and the private jet and, and pressing up the, the copies of Dance, Dance, Dance in time for the convention, you didn't even have a master tape. It was on a second generation version yeah. of the song. And that's the hit version that everybody knows, right? Buddha had the master tape. As a matter of fact, uh, we put out a box set last year with the final, uh, with the Buddha version on it. When you can hear the bandwidth, it's just, you, you hear crazy. the bass response is really killing. 
Let's fast forward to the the famous night, New Year's Eve, 1977, 1978. Grace Jones calls you and says, hey, show up at Studio 54 or I'm playing and just tell them that you're here to see me. And then yeah. that was a history changing night, but not because you met Grace Jones. Tell everybody what happened. Right. So what happened is uh, because of our song, Everybody Dance, which was really popular in the underground club. I mean, that that was the cut. Of course, Dance, Dance, Dance was the big hit single that was on the radio. But if you went to a club, man, it was all about Everybody Dance. So Grace Jones called us up. We had never met Grace Jones before. We had heard all the rumors about, you know, removing the brown M&Ms or whatever, whatever color M&Ms you take out of the thing and all sorts of crazy rock and roll stuff that stars would do. So we looked at Grace Jones as a serious superstar and she was actually calling us up to meet her. And she said to us, so what you have to understand, she, Grace has a very, very peculiar speaking voice. And I didn't know that that affectation was just how she speaks because maybe all the places that she's lived, you know, Paris and being Jamaican and raised in upstate New York and whatever. So, but we didn't know. We thought that that was the voice that we had to put on to get in. She says to us, so darling, in order to understand who I am as an artist, you must see my live show. And we're listening and we're going, okay, okay, okay. She says, so just come to the back door and tell them that you are personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. And that's sort of what it sounded like to us, a cross between Marlena Dietrich, Bella Lugosi, and maybe a little bit of Bob Marley thrown in. So we tried it and, you know, we were kicking on the door to get the person's attention. And I would imagine, like, look, I became a person who went to Studio 54 every night of my life because it was around the corner from my apartment. But this was one of the, you know, one of my early trips. I used to be able to get in as long as I was with my girlfriend but even though they were playing my music, they didn't know who I was. And we sort of liked it that way. So we go and we knock on the back door and we go, hello, we are personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. And the guy slams the door in our face and he says, oh, fuck off. And we went, no, 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 really. And we go and we kick the door and we're trying to make the, the you know, a noise louder than the music inside because the music inside is blasting. So now we're kicking it both at the same time. We're synchronized. Kick, 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 kick. And he finally opens the door again. He said, hey, man, didn't I tell you to F off? And we sort of knew at that point we weren't getting in. So my apartment was just around the corner. And on the way to my apartment, we had to pass a liquor store. We picked up two bottles of Dom Perignon um, champagne, which we used to call rock and roll mouthwash. And uh, we went back to my apartment and we downed the bottles really fast. Bernard had one, I had the other. We just drank it down. We got buzzy real fast. And we were lightheaded and we were laughing because now we had just ruined our really super expensive shoes standing out in the wet snow. And, you know, and they salt the ground. So mine were suede and was going to have a, a ring around my shoes. So we were just laughing at the, the absurdity of the night. It's New Year's Eve, they're playing our music in the club and we can't even get in. So we wrote a protest song. We wrote the song that went, we just used the guy's exact words. He went, oh, fuck off. So we went, oh, fuck off. Fuck Studio 54. Fuck off. Oh, fuck off. And we were into it. We, we wrote out a whole thing where 
the appropriate answer, the only or the best appropriate answer would be fuck off. You know, if your mother asks you to do homework, fuck off. If a cab driver cuts you off, fuck off or whatever. So we were into it. We were laughing, hysterical. And then finally, the genius of Bernard Edwards went, my man, you know this shit is happening. And I'm like going, this was like two years before hip hop. Like, Bernard, how are we going to get fuck off on the radio? Not going to happen. It's going to beep every time. And that beep would really take away from the groove. It's not going to, it doesn't make sense. Because that our chorus is just me playing. It's just guitar and drums. There's nobody else playing. It's just, it's a breakdown. Um so we tried to change the lyrics because now Bernard was convinced that it was a hit and he convinced me that it was a hit. So we changed it to freak because freak was also a good euphemism for the four letter word with an F. Um, but it sounded really lame to go, ah, freak off. Ah, freak off. And it was, it was like not happening. At some point we remembered because my girlfriend at the time was talking about the dance that everybody was doing now in New York called the freak. And I just happened to mention it. And Bernard, he, he corroborated. He said, right. Yeah. My kids are talking about that. My kids are doing that dance. So we, um, we said, okay, well, great. Let's write a song about a dance. Uh, we didn't know how to do the dance, but we figured, well, we'll go out and buy a couple of records that were about dances and they would give us a good blueprint. So we ran out and we bought chubby checker, the twist and we bought uh, Joey D and the Starlighters peppermint twist. We get back at the house and we listen to the lyrics carefully and it goes, neither record tells you how to do the dance. Chubby Checker goes, come on, baby, let's do the twist. Come on, baby, let's do the twist. Take me by my little hand and go like this. Like what? So they don't say put your right foot here, put your left foot there. Nothing. And we listen to the, we listen to Joey D, and he go, "We got a new dance, and it goes like this." Oh, the name of the dance is the peppermint with the ride, the peppermint with the ride, all right. The peppermint was like, okay. So we write. Have you heard about the new dance craze? Listen to us. I'm sure you'll be amazed. Big fun to be had by everyone. It's up to you. Surely can be done. Young and old are doing this. I'm told. Just one try and you two will be sold. It's called the freak. Bernard came up with the love to make it chic, right? We were, we were pretending to be French in our early days. It's called the freak. We're doing it night and day. Allow us. We'll show you the way. Ah, and then we don't show you the way. We just go, ah, freak out. Just like they go, just like they go round and around and up and down and up, 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 up. We just go, ah, freak out. never show you the way because we don't know how to show you the way we didn't know how to explain it so we just turned it from a protest song into a song praising the people at studio 54 so you you say in the book by not getting what we wanted we got more than we ever imagined lafrique ended up selling 12 million units worldwide 
yes, yeah, still the biggest selling single in Atlantic history. Um, we were passed by Florida a few years ago, but then, you know, now because of streaming, La Freak is still going on mighty strong. And what's really cool about La Freak, when I met Nelson Mandela, a lot of people in Africa think that we're singing Africa. La Freak, c'est chic. And so, like, when I met Nelson Mandela, the guy who was, like, bringing him around town at Robert De Niro's restaurant in New York, he says, ah, he's the guy who wrote Africa. Like, he was giving me props for writing We Are Family and doing Coming to America. <laughs> but, but when the guy said, yo, he's the guy who wrote Africa, Africa, La I was like, how do you tell Nelson Mandela? Uh, well, no, it's about a dance. It's not Africa. Talk about deep hidden meaning, right? Exactly. The boy, I was like, I mean, so embarrassed. You meet like the coolest person in the world and say, uh, you know, my mom sings the wrong lyrics too. <laughs> Let's go back to Atlantic. Talk to us about Jerry Greenberg kind of offering you carte blanche of the Atlantic roster. And you can produce anybody you want, Niall and Bernard. You want to work with the Rolling Stones? You want to work with Bette Midler, who do you want to work with? And you're like, no, nah, no, nah, they're already established. We'd like to work with somebody who nobody knows yet. Yeah. So we were really into the anonymity thing. And we also, you know, we were fairly logical. We couldn't imagine telling Keith Richards, uh, well, I'll play the guitar on your record. You can sit down. <laughs> like, uh, yo, uh, Mick, you could do the lead vocal after we write the songs. We didn't think that that would fly with the Stones. And then with Bette Midler, everybody really associated her with Barry Manilow. We just thought, ah, they'll just think that it's another Bette Midler record and Barry Manilow wrote the songs or produced it, whatever. So we wanted somebody that no one knew and we wanted to prove to them that you got to remember, we were extremely idealistic. We really believe that it wasn't about the artist so much as it was about the song and the artist. If you get the right song to the right artist, then you have something. So when Jerry told us about Sister Sledge, we then conceived who they were based on his elevator pitch to us. So he talked to us about these girls that were like family to the label. And we're like, oh, cool. They're like family. And they also happen to be family. Bingo. That, that was great. So we were, we were on to something right away. We, we went home and we looked at our legal paths. We, we were trying to act like we were professionals. We were just journeymen. But we wore suits to the meeting and the whole bit, had legal pads. And we're writing down everything Jerry is saying and bullet pointing them and, you know, and underlining the bullets and saying, oh, man, yeah, they're like family. And they happen to be family. They really are sisters. Cool. And, uh, you know, and, and when we wrote We Are Family, um, we knew that that was a hit. It, like, I've done a lot of songs in my life. I've written maybe, certainly hundreds, but maybe well into the thousands. I'm not sure. But I've only had a few times where I absolutely knew something was a hit. And I guess that's a great byproduct of youth because when you're young, you're really into the scene. You know what's going on. You know what your friends like. You know what the people around you like. You, you know what it feels like to have new music that will be accepted because we're all sort of living and breathing the same air. So when we composed We Are Family, we knew that that was a smash. We are family. I got all my sisters with me. 
also realized that, hey, we were so into proving ourselves, we wound up writing the best collection of songs in our whole lives. It was like, wow, we can't ever do this again. This is like amazing. We got Lost in Music. We got He's the Greatest Dancer. We got uh, Thinking of You. Thinking of You. Like, there's not one lame song on the Sister Sledge album. They're like, they're all cool. And we're like, oh my God, if we put out We Are Family First, no one's ever going to hear any of these other songs because that'll just be a really big record. And those were the days where Black artists only got two singles if you were lucky, unless you were the Jackson 5 or something. But, you know, Black artists, you were never getting more than two singles. So we conceived this whole thing. Now, we never even met Sister Sledge. When they got to the studio, the entire album was already finished. All they had to do was sing it. You know, we listened to their range on uh, their other records. And uh, so we knew that we had composed within the vocal range of Kathy. And that was the voice that we focused on. And when they got to the studio, we were just finishing up the lyrics to We Are Family. They heard the track. And and typically, I just want to say that we start the album with the song that we know is going to be the single. So that creates the vibe. Like we record the single first. And so now everybody's feeling good. We feel like we got a hit. So people just feel relaxed. So they came in, we recorded We Are Family first, but we had already known that that wasn't going to be the first single, but we knew that that was going to be the single. We then do He's the Greatest Dancer, and we had already focused on, on Kathy as the singer. And we didn't know that she was 16 and that she was a virgin and that they were all really religious girls. And we had written a lyric about having a one-night stand. Oops. Um, <laughs> and they asked us to change the lyric. And their mother was the manager, too. Like, And they were all religious. They were like, ah. Uh, uh, <laughs> the song was clearly about having a one-night stand with this guy who was the greatest dancer, and he was so fantastic. He had the kind of body that would shame Adonis and a face that would make any man proud. Oh, what wow, he's the greatest dancer that I've ever seen. Did-a-did-a-did-a-lip. So there's a lyric that goes, my creme de la creme, please take me home. My creme de la creme, please take me home. He wears the finest clothes the best designers heaven knows. Ooh, from his head down to his toes. Halston, Gucci, Fiarucci. He looks like a steer. That man is dressed to kill. You know, she doesn't want him to leave the disco without her. Man. And they kept saying, well, why can't we just say my creme de la creme? Please don't go home. And we said, oh, no, that's lame, because that means you just want to sit there and watch him. That doesn't that doesn't make any sense. No, my creme de la creme, please take me home. And then when Kathy says, but I'm a virgin and I'm 16 years old and I would never have a one night stand. <laughs> I said to her, <laughs> and I believe me, I wasn't being egotistical. I, w- I just said to her, I said, Kathy, you don't know what you just did. She says, what? I said, you just made me a genius. She said, what do you mean? I said, because once you sing this lyric, you're basically resetting your moral compass. That's how strong this thing is. And she's looking at me like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And I said, this this person is so magnetic and so charismatic, he's going to make you do something that you would never do. 
when I wrote the song, I thought it would be something that, of course, you would do because you're these hip girls. You're on the cutting edge of fashion and blah, 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 sexual revolution, a whole bit. No, I never had sex. Ah! But she she was wonderful. She was a real trooper. The only thing that she asked me was, Nile, do you think this song is going to be on the radio? And I said, Kathy, I promise it's going to be on the radio. We did the album in no time at all, because as I said, it was basically finished. So they just had to sing the songs. And that was it. We were done in a few days. So I didn't speak to the to the sisters for, I don't know, a couple of months. Record got packaged and delivered and hit the radio. And one day I'm sitting in my apartment and my phone rings. And Kathy is on the other line. And she said, no, listen to this. It's on the radio. She puts the phone up to the radio. And she goes, my God, you were right. It's on the radio. And uh, we've been lifelong friends ever since. She actually sits on the board of my charity. and Talk about the We Are Family Foundation because you're doing amazing work. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of the, the, the ballast. It's, uh, actually, it's better than that. It's a balance in my life. When the uh, first plane was crashed into the, to the World Trade Center, into the North Tower, I had three colleagues that were on that, that plane. As a matter of fact, all three of them were attached to Warner Brothers because one of them was my personal photographer, um, was Barry Berenson, who did my, my, you know, my Warner Brothers headshots and, you know, and my uh, promo pictures. She was the wife of um, the actor, uh, remember Psycho? And um, oh, God, what's his name? Perkins. Anthony, Anthony Perkins, right? But she was her family name. Her maiden name is Berenson, and she's the sister of Marissa Berenson, the actress. And she was an incredible photographer. She was on the plane as well as you know. I, I don't know if you know um, a gentleman associated with Warner's, John Bugue. He had two of his family members on the plane, and so I had the two Bugues and Berenson. That so when the crawl came up on CNN and they were showing the names of the people who had passed away. I saw their names in succession. It was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it because they were flying to San Francisco. I guess their plane had been diverted. There was a hurricane that was sort of right off the East Coast at the time. So they went up to to Boston to take a flight to the West Coast. It was really, really sad. And after that tragedy, then another tragedy started happening in America where people were killing and beating and raping Muslim women and or people that just looked Muslim, Middle Eastern people. As a matter of fact, one of the girls who worked for my girlfriend's publication, they were Hindi and they were Sikh. But just because they, you know, looked different and, you know, uh, brother wore a turban, they beat this guy up and the people who ran uh convenience stores near my house they broke in and beat these guys to a pulp a bloody pulp so i just kept thinking that you know i guess it was the sesame street in me i figured like i've traveled all around the world and i see that we're all the same we all really want the same thing and so we started the organization initially as an anti-bias organization and then we realized what really was the foundation was education and we started building schools primarily in Africa 
And then we spread out to, uh, we built the school in Nepal and we built a couple of schools in Nicaragua. So it was this educational component. And then we realized that, you know, we started to concentrate on teenagers because we thought that, well, when kids are really young, uh, that's not really our wheelhouse. And once you're adults, that felt like you're already set in your ways. But teens, I remember how impressionable I was as a, as a teen and how idealistic I was as a teen. That was the, the sweet spot for, for change and for inspiration. So we started to concentrate on teens and we came up with what we call global teen leaders. And we concentrated on kids that were doing things around the world to change the world. And as we developed more and more and our curriculum got stronger, our program got stronger, the quality of the kids and what they were doing, uh, their projects that they were working on got stronger and stronger. And the next thing you know, we started having kids that wound up working with Stephen Hawking, the Hawking Institute. A couple of our kids are now with uh, Bill Gates. And we just, so now we've developed into a year-long mentoring program. And it's been the greatest thing I think I could ever do. And every kid that's been with us now, we have over 300. And they're in my life forever. It's like I have children now. Some of them have grown up and they're married and they have kids. And we call, you know, our next gen global teen leaders. And and, yeah, and it's just it's just a wonderful organization. And we just had our first virtual summit this year. And it was more successful than I could have ever imagined. It was really great because all the kids are tech heads and it, it was just wonderful. And, you know, these kids have now touched over, uh, uh, you know, I hate to throw around statistics that are not accurate, but I can pretty much say that they've touched over a billion people. Their projects are, are vast and amazing. The last few years uh, I've said, you know, if uh, we were, on the threshold of the apocalypse, if something really went wrong, these 35 kids would help me survive. We could rebuild society. That's how dedicated and driven and terrific they are. Amazing. I mean, and think of it, that it all comes back to you and Bernard writing the song, We Are Family, and and how it resonates (laughs) 40 years later and has such deep hidden meaning, as you say. You know, I mean, I would love, there's so much that we're just not going to have time to talk about. Your your work with David Bowie and your work with Madonna and uh, just so much that I, I, obviously the Daft Punk success with Niall, with um, Pharrell and, and Pharrell. Get Lucky, but yeah, Pharrell and, and Get Lucky uh, winning the Grammys and, you know, the the, the tragedy of Bernard in, in Tokyo in 96 and and so much more that you can read about in Niall's book, La Freak, that I, I really recommend. And maybe one day it will become a television show and we can all see the stories <laughs> on, on the real screen. But Niall, this was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate your time and all the music that you've given us through the years. You're really an inspiration. Thank you, man. I'm sorry to be so long-winded, but I get caught up in this stuff because it's just, you you take me back. And I, it, it was such a wonderful journey. You know, I would have never survived without music. And the people that I met along the way have just been wonderful mentors. And I just have the greatest life. Amazing. And you would have never thought of it, that it would be my life, given my childhood. But to me, it actually makes perfect sense. Band well, thank you 
totally. Bad logic. Thank you for today and thank you for the music. Kyle Rogers, thank you. Thank you. Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. Let's dance to the song. Thanks again to Niall Rogers for spending time with us this week. There was so much more we could have talked about. His list of career achievements is truly mind-boggling. You can learn more by reading his book, Le Freak, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny, or by visiting his website at nilerogers.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.